If you're between the ages of four to the second grade, you're excused to kids club. Someday I'm going to take a picture of all of them running. You guys need to see that. It is quite a treasure we have in this church with so many kids um, and little people and little faces and little runs, and it's pretty awesome. What do you represent? Perhaps you're outspoken about your political beliefs, maybe a sports team. Maybe if we looked at your car, we would find bumper stickers. Stickers would declare your allegiance to peace or to the veterans, maybe a favorite vacation spot. Or what if we looked at your clothes or in your closet, we might see the brands that you choose to represent or the labels that you like to wear. And if we ask your friends, they might quickly share with us about some products that you're always trying to sell them. Or maybe that you're a passionate vegetarian, or conversely, maybe a hot dish connoisseur. I had fun writing that line. Maybe you love Macs or PC or Linux. What is it that you choose to rep with your life? Because if we talked to your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, frankly, if you talk to my friends, my neighbors, or my coworkers, what would they say we represent? And would they tell us, and would they even mention Jesus? This week, as we continue on into the book of Acts, a book which we introduced last week, we're going to look at this calling that Luke writes about, that Jesus gives to his disciples, that we represent Jesus. And in doing so, he both gives us a mission and a mode. He gives us a calling and the power to accomplish it. So as we step back into the book of Acts, let me give us a little bit of background in case you missed it that will help us as we continue through this series. Last week we considered Luke, the author, and Theophilus, the recipient, not only of this book, but also the book of Luke. We talked about that last week. You have two books written together, Luke and the book of Acts, both written by Luke, both written to Theophilus. And I want to keep reminding you that Luke was not a disciple, nor was he an apostle, nor was he an eyewitness to the life of Christ. But he, much like us, was someone who heard the message of Jesus Christ and had his life transformed. I keep wanting to say that he was radically transformed, but sometimes that language of radical moves away from us. I've taken to calling the book Radical written by David Platt a couple years ago. I love the book. Just wish it would have been called Normal. Because we have this idea that radical Christianity looks like this, and normal Christianity looks like this. As if to say that somehow the Bible would want to put its stamp of approval on I wake up and go to church on Sundays and the rest of my life is not impacted at all. Years ago, David Kinnaman wrote the book 
unchristian. You read the book and you think he's talking about unbelievers, but what he looks at is studies done by a number of research groups clarifying that the vast majority of Christians live in a manner that is unchristian. That if you want to look at all the studies that have been done, that marijuana usage amongst Christians is actually no different than it is versus the world. Pornography usage amongst Christians is no different than it is against the world. Alcohol use and abuse is no different amongst Christians than it is against the rest of the world. There are only two statistical variations they found. A mild willingness to buy religious materials. We are somewhat more likely to buy Bibles. That's terrifying. We are somewhat more likely to buy Christian books. And he would say that we're more likely to attend religious services. And yet somehow in our brand of Christianity in America, we've labeled that not only as normal Christian. And friends, we want to step into that as we step into this book to see what it is that Jesus came for, to see what it is that Jesus died for, and to see what it is that Jesus left us to do. And he's going to make that so plain to us as we walk through this book. The text, both Luke and Acts, suggest to us that Luke wrote both of these so that his friend Theophilus would have an orderly account. So you might ask then the question, how did Luke, who was not an eyewitness, get all of his information? And the answer is simple. He researched it. Which means he went out and found the people that the stories were about and he asked them. And he asked them questions and he wanted to know what happened. He testifies this in Luke 1, 2. That there were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word that delivered the truth to us. Luke heard about Jesus the same way that you and I did. The difference between you and I is that Luke could go sit down with eyewitnesses, people who watched it happen, and he wrote it all down so that we would know. Friends, you lean into this. It's astounding that this Gentile writer who grew up not knowing God went on to write 27% of the New Testament more than any other writer. 5,000 more words than Paul. Why? Because Jesus made a huge impact on his life. And he knew what Jesus had sent him in the world to do. This morning we're going to continue in the book of Acts hoping to make it more clear for us what he has for us. We'll pick back up Acts 1.1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. We worked through that last week. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And what Luke does in these three verses is he summarizes all of Jesus' earthly ministry. And to be more frank, he takes the entire book of Luke and writes it in three sentences. This is everything that my previous book says. 
if you're just picking this up, you just pick it up as a novel you don't know, first book said all this. Everything Jesus taught, everything he did. It's noteworthy to know that Luke says that Jesus did before he says that Jesus talked. Jesus was a doer. He accomplished things, and he taught about that which he accomplished. So that it would be evident and obvious, he puts that before us in the book of Acts as well. But he writes everything that happens in the book of Luke. That Jesus worked, he taught, he died, he was risen, and that he appeared to many. The book of 1 Corinthians puts that number at more than 500 to whom he appeared. And then he ascended into heaven. And as we look into these next verses, Luke fills out that part of the story of the ascension. That's what we're going to lean into this morning. Verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said... You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So just as Jesus had made an appointment with his disciples to meet with them after he'd been resurrected, which is pretty astounding. I'm going to die, but after that I want you to meet me here. Like I'm confident in my resurrection. Now Jesus is saying, I'm leaving and the Holy Spirit's coming And he's making an appointment for them to meet with the Holy Spirit. But the word I want you to point out to you now is a word that we need to give some consideration to. Because what Jesus tells them to do is wait. A word that none of us like to hear. A word that in our entitled lives we are convinced we should never have to deal with. And especially about spiritual things. We wholeheartedly think that God should provide now. That God should bless me now. That God should show me everything now. It's one of the great beauties of the song we just sung, Behold Our God. Because it recounts for us some of the great verbiage out of the book of Job when we're reminded, man, we're just mere mortal men. And He's God. And it puts us in our place to recognize who He is and who we are. That God would call us to wait. Which tells us maybe that God isn't as concerned with efficiency as maybe we are. That God isn't looking at this macro, get everything done, as much as we might consider That God might have a plan and a desire in calling us to do the last thing we want to do, and that's wait. And I think it's important for us to see that. Because we find in this text that waiting serves a purpose. And that part of the purpose of waiting is so that we don't seem so self-reliant. So that it occurs to us that it's not about us. That it can't be accomplished by us or through us. That we are not enough, we are not sufficient. And that's a really helpful thing for us to know. So the next time you stand in a DMV line and you're standing there for an hour, realize, man, I'm not even strong enough to get my own license tag right now. God wants you to know that. That what he's putting before his disciples here 
is a call to trust on him completely. And not just for a minute or for three minutes or even a week or a month or even years. God calls us always to wait on him so that it would ever and always be abundantly clear to us that we are reliant on him. This week I was going through some of my journals and praying through some things I've been praying through for a while. And for the first time it really occurred to me that I've had some prayer requests on my journals that when I pray for things and they're answered, I cross them out. And then if I get something else, I add the old stuff to the new one. And I've got, and I've got prayer requests I've been praying about for decades. Well, I've been praying for that for like 25 years. Like it may be even that old. It, it was crazy to think, God, I've been putting this before you for 25 years and almost feel frustrated. Like you should have taken care of that by now. Like did you not get my request? I, I clearly have sent it to you maybe a thousand times, maybe 10,000 times. And yet we realize that God didn't work for me. God didn't answer my requests. Oh, sure, he loves me. He listens to me. But the way that this works is I'm relying on him rather than him being reliant on me. The one of the reasons God asks us to wait so that we would know that it's not up to me or my power or my words or my agenda, that it's all entrusted to him. So even to his disciples, Jesus says, wait. And he's not talking about for dinner. He's talking about the mission of everything he came to do to unleash the kingdom before people. This is everything Jesus had set them up to do. And Jesus is saying, wait, it's not time yet. And so for 10 days, Jesus sits them out in Jerusalem to wait so that they would consider that they are missing the necessary something that will allow them to be successful at what he's called them to do, which we also need to lean into, right? That despite the fact that these disciples that had walked with Jesus for three years, that had put their heads on the same rock that he had put his head on, that had eaten the bread and the fish that he had created for them, that somehow that wasn't enough. And that even though they had experienced his death and his resurrection, it wasn't enough. And even though they literally walked with him, they'd mastered his teaching, and even the confidence and the competency that they had gained in being sent out and coming back only to get his feedback, that somehow that wasn't enough for them to go and to testify to who he was In fact, it's not even close to enough. And friends, we need to know that. Because so often we tie our ability to do ministry to our spiritual pedigree. As if we need to have the right education. We need to have the right experiences. We need to have the right training. We need to walk with Jesus for a long time. In order to step out and to be faithful, we've got to do this, this, and this. Jesus sidelines all of those things. 
He puts before them, wait for the Holy Spirit. Wait for Him. Which will come in Acts 2. And we'll get there in two weeks. But Jesus says, wait for it. And the disciples interject. So when they had come together, they ask Him, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And before we get and jump on the disciples too hard for jumping the gun, we need to at least give them the credit to know that Jesus had told them that He would restore the physical kingdom. They're asking a question that lines up with the reality that the Old Testament declares in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Joel and in Zechariah that a spirit baptism would coincide with the beginning of a messianic kingdom. So we've got to give them some credit that these guys knew the Old Testament. And they were stepping in and going, all right, is it time? But yet they were still missing the nature of the kingdom. Something we can do too. So Jesus clarifies this for them in verse 7. Verse 7, it says, He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. Basically, Jesus says, mind your business. It's not for you to know when the Father will restore the kingdom. Who, where were you when God created the heavens and the earth? It's the words of Job. God's saying, I got it all together and it's not for you to know. Wait. And He follows it up by bringing them back to a right understanding of the kingdom. Bringing it all together for them in verse 8. And he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus points them forward to the Holy Spirit. Now two weeks, we're going to spend a whole Sunday just talking about and outlining the Holy Spirit. So we've got a better and a more full doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We'll get there. But what Luke is writing, what Jesus is teaching, is that the Holy Spirit is coming, and coming with it, there are power. There is power. Luke says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. That the Holy Spirit is not a presence or a conviction or even a comfort but that it is a power and friends we will see this power played out throughout the book of acts over and over and over because it's this power that allows the disciples to testify it's this power that lets the disciples believe even in the direst of situations and it's this power that allows them to walk in very uncomfortable places. It's this power that carries all of them through the book of Acts. And in the early church. And in the modern church as well. Let's pause for a moment. Because the disciples were promised the Holy Spirit. And they had to wait ten days before they're set loose. It wasn't about their education. It wasn't about their experiences. It was about the Holy Spirit. So let's pause for a second. Let me ask you a question that requires no external response. Do you have the Holy Spirit? Do you have all of the Holy Spirit? 
And do you have power? Ephesians 1.13, Paul writes it this way, In Him, you also, in Christ, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Paul writes very clearly, That when you heard the gospel and believed the gospel, there's two distinct steps there. We've always got to be clear about that. That It's not just enough to hear the gospel or to grow up somewhere, to have parents who've always taken you to church, that there does come a point when you believe. And for some of you, you may never remember a time when you didn't believe. For some of you, you've grown up in faithful homes and Jesus has always been before you. And blessed be the Lord that that's true. Because it wasn't true for all of us. Some of us had to do all kinds of stupid and filthy things to be shown our need for a Savior. That God had to take us through the valley of the shadow of death to show us that we had a need. And we believed. Paul puts that before. Whether you have always believed or whether you believed out of faith or fear or whatever. It's the fact that you believed in Jesus, according to Paul, that confirms that you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Literally, that means that the Holy Spirit has covered you. He's on you. He's claimed you. He's marked you. He said, this one's mine. It's like the commercial where the guy licks the car and says, It's mine. It's what Jesus has done to you. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, this one is mine. You are sealed, not today, but forever. I have claimed this one. So if you've believed, then you've been sealed with a promised Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that the disciples were given. And so if it's been given to you, church, you have power, according to the text. In fact, the reason why we've called this series Empowered is because as we walk through this book, we will see the Spirit at work through the lives of normal people like you and me. I think one of the coolest studies you can do in the Bible is to study the life of Peter before and after the Holy Spirit. Brother is a bonehead before receiving the Holy Spirit. He is sharp-tongued. He is way out there. He's doing all the stuff that part of us think, oh, that's totally me. And part of us think, oh, I don't like that guy. He always is out there, and yet when the Holy Spirit comes into his life, all of a sudden Peter's a different guy. We'll see in a couple of weeks him stand up in front of the very men that crucified Jesus, look him in the eyes and said, very Christ whom you crucified. The Holy Spirit does incredible things in his life to give him the power to testify to Jesus. So we have to ask, what is this power and what does it do? And Luke tells us. He says, when you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and 
You will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. In the original language, it's actually not clear whether this is a predictive text or a command. Either it's declaring, you will be my witnesses. You're going to go and do these things. Or it's saying, you will go and do these things. Either way, we find it's kind of helpful. Because some of us who've been reared in the faith, who have known Jesus for a long time, need to hear God's commands in our life. Need to be challenged with the fact that Jesus says, you will go do this. Because this is the God eternal giving you a command. Some of us need to be burdened with that. And some of us need to be comforted by a predictive text that would say, and you will be my witnesses. As if God is confirming who he has made us to be. God is confirming what he's doing in and through our lives. That he has called us to be his witnesses. That either way, the purpose of the Holy Spirit was to be the power and the ability that allowed them to share and to carry out the mission. That it was the Holy Spirit that allowed them to preach. That it was the Holy Spirit that allowed them to testify. That it was the Holy Spirit that allowed them to heal. That it was the Holy Spirit that built the church. Jesus says when, you, when the Spirit comes, you will have power. And that you will be the ones that give testimony. That you will bear witnesses to who I am. Friends, this is where we've got to lean in and realize that this is not a conditional statement. It doesn't say you can be my witness. It doesn't say you might be my witness. It doesn't say that if you successfully string together three days in a row of having successful quiet times, that you'll be my witness. It doesn't say once you've gotten your act together, you can be my witness. Jesus says that having received the Holy Spirit, that having believed in Him and been sealed, that you testify to who He is. That your life is a testimony to who He is. Which is to say, quite bluntly, Farmer Wayne would tell you I'm about to meddle. Everyone around you your family, your neighbors, your coworkers will get an impression about Jesus by watching you. Everyone near you will learn about Jesus by listening to you. Everyone around you will learn about Jesus by being around you. Why? Because you're his witness. What are we testifying about him? Do my neighbors think that Jesus doesn't care about them because I don't care? Do my coworkers think that Jesus doesn't have time to lean into some of their challenges because I don't have time to lean into some of their challenges? Friends, we can treat people with such an easy disregard, with such an easy blow off, and never realize what that communicates about the gospel to those around us. 
And is there a tension in that? Absolutely, there's a tension in that. Friends, we're the church. We gather together to lift high the name of Jesus Christ to declare that He is the only one that's good enough, that He's the only one sufficient. And then we gather together to say that because we aren't. That if you opened up any of our lives, you'd find a bunch of half-hearted hypocrites who are doing it occasionally okay. That's any of us, myself included. Don't buy into the fact that there's like six of us that are awesome. Or six of them. Because I'll tell you up front, it wouldn't be me. But we do have to lean into the fact that we have an all-sufficient Savior who is absolutely good enough and who loved us sufficiently to go to the cross on our behalf, to give us new life, and to give us the power to testify to who He is. So that it's not about me doing everything right. I don't go across the street to engage my neighbor and say, hey guys, let me tell you how moral I am and how you can be moral like me. Because that's going to get you real far. Gives you the opportunity when one of your neighbors says, man, pray for me, I'm struggling with cancer. That happened to me on Thursday. To lean in to say, man, brother, I'm so sorry. I can't imagine what that's like. Hey, can we pray about this? Do you know God who's the great physician? And I don't know that he can heal you now. He might. But I know he can walk you through all of this. And it gives us a chance to literally to love people and to show Christ. I don't know that my neighbor Steve sees pictures of Christ. His, his wife said to me the other day, listen, we ain't church-going people, so if you'd pray for us, we don't have God like you have God. Where are they going to see God? Other than their neighbor's ability to step into their life. Now, if I drive home today and I get in my car and I don't wait at Steve and I just rally my children into the house and try to get them fed and act like my neighbors don't exist, I can communicate things to them that I would never want them to know. Friends, we are His witnesses all the time. And don't be intimidated by that. He gave you the power to do it. In fact, in Ephesians 1.10, He tells you that He's created you as His workmanship. And He's put you in the places and the times and seasons He's desired to put you in so that you can walk into all that He's created you for. He wants to bless you in the midst of all of that. He wants to build you up in Him so that you will be faithful in those moments. And we can't miss the fact that these disciples are called to be His strategic witnesses in Jerusalem. The city to which they were in. Now, part of the reason we lean into that is because most of these guys weren't from Jerusalem. They landed in Jerusalem. They happened to be standing in Jerusalem, and yet Jesus would say, I have a calling for you here. That happens to some of us. God plucks you up and drops you somewhere, and you say, This isn't my home. These aren't my people. Jesus says, This is where I've got you. This is where I want you to be. 
This is why I want you to be a strategic witness for me. Most of these guys were from Galilee. The interesting thing is this verse lays out a summary of the book of Acts. And for the first seven chapters of the book of Acts, the church starts in Jerusalem, is centralized in Jerusalem, and reaches out in Jerusalem. And then Jesus says in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria that they're called to be his witnesses. And you find in Acts 12, you see the church having begun spread into Judea and Samaria. And we can't miss the distinctions. Because the call to Judea is to reach Israelites. Or if you like it this way, religious people. Those who've known God. Those who lead good moral lives. Those who seek after him, whether they're getting it right or not. Jesus says, go to them and be my witness. And there's a call to reach the Samaritans, which would have been really hard to hear. Because as you may know, the Jewish people detested the Samaritans. They called them half-breeds. They called them heretics. There was nothing about a Samaritan that would ever make a Jewish man want to go there. And there's nobody who would have felt that more than Luke, a Gentile. Yet Jesus says, go to them. Go to those that you would despise and tell them about me. Jesus paints this all-encompassing picture covering every possible category. Go to those who you are not good as, like the religious types. Go to those that you are way better than. If you've ever looked down on somebody, looked down on a people group, thought somebody wasn't worthy of the gospel, Jesus might say, then I call you to go there. I'm sending you there purposefully so that you would see that God goes out to everyone. That he values everyone. That it's about the Imago Day that every human regardless of where they were born or where they're a citizen of or what they look like or how they practice their life, was made in the image of God. So we love them. Finally, Paul, or I'm sorry, Jesus pushes them to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, which is probably a veiled reference to Rome. There was an idea in that society that if you could get anything to Rome, it'd get to the world. So if you can get something to Rome, you've got it to the ends of the earth, that the gospel would spread. And that's why you see in Acts 13 through 28 that the gospel, you see guys trying to go to Rome, trying to get the gospel to a place that will spread to the world. And they do that in the end. And the gospel's taken to the rest of the world. Friends, we have to see that Jesus gave these guys a strategic mission. And they followed it. They obeyed. Just as Jesus gave them Acts 1.8, they go to Jerusalem. They go to Judea and Samaria. They go on to Rome. They see that the gospel is spread out. Not according to their abilities or their experience or their training, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. They go. And Peter and Paul are both martyred in Rome. Andrew made it as far as Russia. Thomas went to Syria. Philip went to Africa. Matthew went to Ethiopia. Bartholomew went to Central Asia. James went to Syria. Simon went to Persia. 
Matthias, whom we'll talk about next week, also went to Syria. And John died on the island of Patmos. None of these guys relented. They were all martyred for their faith. By the power of the Holy Spirit, they went. And then Luke writes that Jesus ascended. And when he had said these things, verse 9, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come and return in the way you saw him go. What a beautiful verse. That if we're going to celebrate his birth, celebrate his death, celebrate his resurrection, we celebrate his ascension, realizing even in his ascension, there's a promise that as he goes up into the clouds, a reference to the Shekinah, the cloud that led God or led God's people all through the Old Testament, now accepts Jesus and that he's going to come back from the Shekinah someday. And we believe that. Church, if you've heard the gospel, if you've believed the gospel, then you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And if you have the Holy Spirit, you have power. It's not about your abilities. It's not about the right words. It's about the Holy Spirit. And we are called to be his witnesses in Fargo, in North Dakota, Minnesota, to the ends of the earth, to represent Jesus, to testify to Jesus. Let me pray. Great Father in heaven, we thank you for a great calling. Thank you that you have saved us. Thank you that you have made us your own. Thank you that you have not called us to reach or engage people out of our own power or our authority called us to do it by the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, may we trust the Spirit, lean into the Spirit, know the Spirit, feel the Spirit. And Father, would you work mightily through us by the power of your Spirit? Because it's not about our strength. It's about who you are. Father, I pray over us as a church that you would use us mightily as your witnesses to the ends of the earth. Amen. Amen. Would the ushers come forward for the